Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week's guest is one quarter of the QI elves behind the hit podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. It is Dan Schreiber. The podcast, which started in 2014, sees four of the researchers behind the BBC panel show QI present their favourite facts. In this episode, we discuss how Dan broke into the TV industry and why he moved to London at 19 after receiving a letter from his icon, Richard Curtis. She wrote to Richard Curtis and said, Hey, there's a young kid at my son's school who wrote this really funny and clearly influenced by Blackadder play, and so you must be a huge influence on him. But from conversations she'd had with me, she knew that I was kind of like lost in the wilderness of like, where do I, what do I do with this? And so she just said, maybe you can send him a note or something. And he did. He, he sent me a copy of Notting Hill, which he signed to me. And it was suddenly, my heroes were real. Plus, we speak about being starstruck, encouraging your inner weirdo, and why it's good to be in the wrong place at the right time. Dan, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Exciting to be here. I always do this. Listeners obviously can't see me, but I raise my arms as if giving someone a big virtual hug which I always think makes me look a little bit strange. No, I think it's a good energy booster as well. It's sort of saying, let's do this. Let's it's do like, it. Yeah, very wrestling, WWF. Yeah, so. God. <laughs> That's not what I'm going for, <laughs> but I'll take it. Let's start off first and foremost. What is the view from your sofa? Talk me through your living room setup. Oh, I mean, I'm not in my living room right now, so I'm going to have to go from memory here. But it's uh, it's a nice big sofa. To the right of the sofa, there are three red cinema chairs that were taken from a old cinema in Birmingham from about the 1930s, and they have they've got they sort of fold up, so they've got the little writing of the numbers of the seats: 15, 16, and 17. I think they are. And there's this huge wooden sort of platform on the bottom, which means you can pull them out and they can free stand without falling backwards because they're just those fold down chairs so that's like the showpiece in the in the uh the point of view from where you're sitting on the sofa these are all some old school retro cinema seats um big tv uh sitting in the corner which largely is just um hey dougie and poor patrol at the moment Although we have managed to slip in some Indiana Jones movies, which is probably, it's it, it's like they're great. I'm not sure a five-year-old and a three-year-old and an eight-month-old should be watching them. But I, you know, it's the stuff I watched as a kid. So I think hopefully I'm doing a, an all right thing. Um, and then there's just books everywhere. The table that's in front of us is covered with books. There, there's the bookshelf to the left. There's the books above the TV. Books are my life. And so... They, much to my my wife's sort of um, resentment, I I keep bringing about three home every day if I get a chance. You get you pass a lot of like um, train stations where there are free books that are on you know, and and I'm a researcher by trade, so if I see a nonfiction book on like the history of theme park engineering, you have to pick that up. There's going to be <laughs> gold in there. And I thought when I married my wife, it was going to be fine because she works in books. She's an editor for Penguin. I thought she loved books. Turns out she's sick of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah very annoying but it's just yeah books 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 everywhere i love that i mean it's really strange you just unlocked 
a core memory for me. I used to love Indiana Jones and I remember going to Disneyland with my dad Mm. and it rained while we were there. And I think I was just at that age, maybe 12, 13, where I could go on the big kid rides. And we went, because it was raining, everyone kind of cleared out. And so I got to go on the Indiana Jones ride like two or three times without queues because of that. America or? No, Paris. Oh, so that weirdly, I've only ever been once to a Disneyland and it was the Paris one when I was about the same age. And is this the ride where you're almost, it's like Temple of Doomy? Yeah. And there's a bit where it looks like it's just going to go off the edge and then it suddenly takes a turn. That's a core memory for me as well. Yeah. um, wow, we've been on the same ride with the same with the same excitement. That's very cool. <laughs> okay, so I know you're saying about um, Paw Patrol, which is mm. is a classic. If people have young children on the show, it seems to be that kids often control the remote. Is that the same in your household? Oh, absolutely. They've um, <laughs> they've worked out certain bits about the remote, but not the main bits. So hugely frustrating for them. And they, I mean, they treat me like I'm like they've hired me to change the channel. So when I get it wrong, or if it's like they can't see the inner workings, like sometimes the battery or the reception of the remote to the TV, it says like it's not connecting properly, and they're like, "Dad, what is your problem?" Like, guys, I'm trying. Like, <laughs> we just get in these huge arguments every single time, but. Yeah, my job is effectively to navigate the the multiple interests of mainly the two boys. You have visions. In the early days of being a dad, you had evenings, definitely. <laughs> but those have gone now. And so your life is just Paw Patrol and, and Hey Dougie. And um, there's, there's a few wins. Hotel Transylvania is amazing. The Adam Sandler <laughs> series. I, I, I genuinely, when they go to sleep, I'll like, I'll just, I'll be up in a minute. I'm just going to finish this movie. You know, <laughs> that's when it gets worrying. When you finish, when they're gone, when you're like, yeah. oh my god, is uh, is Chase going to solve this case against Mayor Humdinger in this Paw Patrol episode? Boys, I'll see you up in bed. I'm just gonna, <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna see this through. So easy to get sucked in when you do have a moment to watch something for yourself. What are you? you drawn towards what have you enjoyed watching recently well i absolutely blitzed the only murders in the building series selena selena gomez Gomez, martin short and steve martin and i steve martin's one of my greatest loves i've i've been obsessed with him as a comedian for forever i've read every single thing that he's put out all his novels all his plays everything and i just had never seen this and and I sort of thought, oh, I might as well dip into it and see. And I forgot how funny Martin Short is. Probably the funniest man alive, I reckon. Just incredibly, hysterically, just everything about him. His body movements, his wording, his enthusiasm. And um, and then it kind of was quite cool because I'm a podcaster and the series is about them making a podcast about true crime. And so I had a sort of like a basic interest anyway. But then the, the chemistry of those three is just perfect. So it's two series out and I just mowed through the, the the entirety of it in no time. I've also seen on your podcast, you've spoken to uh, quite a few of the Ted Lasso cast. Yeah, Phil Dunster came on to uh, No Such Thing as a Fish. He plays Jamie Tart, And that was incredibly exciting because we discovered through this, this was the weirdest connection. So in the first series, um, and all the way through, but in the first series, particularly, there's the big chant, the chant of Jamie Tart, do, 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 the, the great, um, baby shark. Yeah, chant, baby right? shark. Yeah. So here's a really weird thing. Before they filmed Ted Lasso, we went on tour with No Such Thing as a Fish and, 
there was a there was a first like in, when we do our live shows as a podcast we do a second half which is a podcast recording but then the first half we do a show where it's a sort of put together front piece where we all do bits of stand up and we have a theme to it and so on and for that one James Harkin who's on our show wrote a song and he wrote it to the tune of Baby Shark so he had this thing of like um uh, what, what, I can't even remember the lyrics of the song now, but do 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 was all the way through, and he realised that he never once filmed himself doing it, so he didn't have any sort of video footage of this performance, and so he put a message out on Twitter just saying, by any chance has anyone who's ever been to our show recorded me singing this song? I'd love a video, and some guy wrote in saying, my brother actually recorded that. He's got the whole song on tape. I'll get him to send it to you, and it turns out that that person was Phil Dunster. It was Jamie Tart himself who has his own Baby Shark version of the song. And the only reason James now has a copy of him singing this is because of Jamie Tart. So that was a really awesome little oh my coincidence. Gosh, yes, full circle. Yeah. Oh, and then when the episode went out, it turned out uh, an old flatmate of mine who I lived with in Dalston Kingsland messaged me going, you know, Phil, Jamie Tart used to be our upstairs neighbor. He lived above us and I had never met him that entire time. But we were we were flatmates basically uh for a couple of years. So or or a few months rather, because uh, I wasn't there that long. Yeah. Um but yeah, so he was on and then we had on I had I've got my new podcast, We Can Be yeah. Weirdos, which is a sort of one-on-one interview with people about their weird beliefs, and Nick Mohammed, Nate the Great. Nathan Shelley. Yeah. Yeah, the Wonder Kid. That was awesome because he has a lot of wonderful, weird beliefs uh, that I was not expecting. Wow. Well, I think what I really enjoy about when I listen to you on your own podcast or on other people's podcasts, you always have these anecdotes. And I mean, I don't know if it's because it's how your brain works and kind of facts and, and fun stories. I listened to you not very long ago and you were talking about how your parents, I can't remember who the celebrity was, but your parents has kind of heard a rumour about someone who died being in, in, someone quite famous died and then was in bed with their mistress. Who Bruce your Lee. Pa- yeah. yeah. I mean, I was like, <laughs> where does this guy get this stuff from? You can't make it up. Well, it's really cool because there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I, I've retained as a kid about, particularly about my parents. So both of my parents are hairdressers and they met in England initially when my mum was working for Videl Sassoon's and my dad was just she was a junior hairdresser and my dad was just moved over from Australia and had moved to Hong Kong and my mum was going to visit Hong Kong with Videl Sassoon's and when she got there my parents met up and and kind of fell in love and got married and stayed there so she she lived there and they opened up a salon there and they were the first westerners to have a salon there and so all of the and at the time western haircuts in hong kong was not a thing but then madonna exploded into the sort of zeitgeist and every chinese actor or actress wanted a haircut that was suddenly about western hollywood kind of fashion and and brit pop not brit pop but british music and so on so they became these like accidental celebrity hairdressers to the majority of chinese cinema and hong kong cinema and then any visiting Western celebrity quite often would get them involved. So like my dad did Ringo Starr's beard, not even his hair, just came in to like just nibble away at like his beard uh, with his scissors. And um, so what's weird is like, you know, you do all these shows and people bring this stuff up and you suddenly go, hang on, I remember being in the salon, sitting at the foot of the chair while this lady's having her hair cut, talking about being Bruce Lee's mistress and like, you know, 
all these conversations that mm. I overheard that I've never put together suddenly come out. And and I, I almost, it's a bit hard because I'm having to remember the facts in the moment because, you know, I haven't thought about it since I was 10 or whatever. Can we take it back to your childhood? So you, you have a really interesting upbringing. So you were born and raised in Hong Kong and then moved for kind of your teenage years to Australia. Yeah. What was TV like for you growing up? Do you have a kind of first TV memory? Yeah, I I was very obsessed with TV. Hence, I guess getting into what what I do now. Um, it was uh, Hong Kong was really great, and so was Australia actually, because it had it had to it had to take in the influences of everywhere and not pick and choose. I feel like even still today, streaming has kind of changed it now in a massive way. But back in the day, a TV show that was in America most likely wasn't going to be on in England. And vice versa, because you you both were doing so well with your own content. Why would you need... British people are so proud of their comedy. Why bring Seinfeld in, you know, or any of the, like, Frasier? And that's obviously changed over the years. But Seinfeld, still one of the biggest syndicated shows in the world, is still virtually unknown in the UK to the average person, unless they've watched it on Netflix or something like that. And so in Hong Kong, we just took everything in. So I... I was obsessed with both American and British stuff. And um, my biggest memory was being in love with the TV show MASH. That was the that was the ultimate one. And I used to sit by the TV with the tiny little... You know, you used to get those little tape recorders where the tape was the size of... It almost looked like it was a tape that belonged to Barbie. Like, they were just these tiny little things. And I used to record the audio of MASH episodes, and I would listen to them on the way to school and on the way back on the bus with headphones in, just the audio that I'd recorded off the TV. I was so obsessed with it. And um, so MASH was a biggie for me. And then a friend from America, I mean, this is a thing that used to happen as well. If you had friends who were overseas traveling, they'd often make compilation videos of shows that were on in the country for you to then watch. So I got given a video that had multiple Friends episodes on because in Hong Kong, we were getting Friends, but we were series behind. And then it was just repeats of the same series. So people would sort of send in black market episodes, but they were not selling them. It was just buddies. And... So I used to watch Friends episodes, but in between the Friends episodes, they'd sort of snuck in Seinfeld episodes. And so that's where I discovered Seinfeld as about a 10-year-old or whatever I was at the time. And um, yeah, so that was that. And then in Australia, kind of a similar thing. Australia just took in a bit of Ryan Laurie and Blackadder. But then you'd have from America, you'd have, you know, all the, again, Seinfeld and all that kind of territory of stuff. Um, So for me, it was a huge mix of... Barely anything local in Hong Kong, except for MTV-style shows, which you would watch. And then in Australia, Australia has great comedy, which, again, no one here knows, um, which is such a shame. I had on my show recently a comedian called Sean McAlaphon, who is one of the greatest living comedians, and just no one here really knows him because he makes all his content for Australia and hasn't really... No one no one just shows it here, but he's there he is. We've got one of the greatest living comedians sort of active, being amazing, and just nothing here, which is a perfect example of how stuff doesn't bleed over. Um, so, yeah, it's all comedy. Comedy was my thing, always. And what were you like in your teenage years? Where did the trajectory for you getting into your career start from i kind of feel the same as i was as (laughs) i I am now i'm not really different from what i was as a teen kind of personality wise i think um 
I was always, I, comedy was going to be what I had to do in life. There was no, I didn't care if I, if it was just producing or writing or sweeping the floor around it. I just, I wanted that to be where I was in life, hanging around with funny people, hopefully making them laugh myself. So that was always the, the goal. And, and in Australia, I used to hang out mainly in secondhand bookshops, just buying books of all the comedian. I mean, I have a library of comedy books now that I think might be unrivaled. I think maybe Ken Dodd might be the only other human that has more books of of a specific genre than I do. Um, I mean, there, there'll be plenty more, but I, I'm I'm definitely up there with with a good number. And um, so the thing though was, I was living in a bit of Australia called Avalon in Palm Beach. Palm Beach is famous uh, kind of subtly for the fact that the local beach there, so our local beach, is where they film Home and Away. So Summer Bay is is Home and Away. And there was one point where David Hasselhoff brought Baywatch over to Avalon, our other local beach, and they filmed a special Baywatch Down Under, and he wanted to move the entire series there. He wanted to take over this beach, and the locals kicked him out. And I was furious. I was like, I can't believe we were going to have Hollywood here. We were going to suddenly... And and as I'm now older, I realize how important it was and correct for them to have done that, because these these shows can ruin a turn somewhere that was a hidden gem, which is what Avalon is, into a commercial tourist trap. So... They were clever to do that. At the time, though, I was furious because I, that was the world I wanted to be a part of. And in Australia, you're just so isolated. There's nothing that um, gives you a sense that you can get involved in that industry, um, just particularly that little stretch of where I lived. And so the, the game changer moment for me was when I was about 16, I wrote a musical for school, which I directed and I was a player and actor in it as well. And someone in the crowd who was my best friend's, one of my best friend's mums, she'd never told me this before, but she had grown up as best friends with Richard Curtis's sister, and so knew Richard Curtis inside out. And so after I had done the play, without telling me, she wrote to Richard Curtis and said, hey, there's a young kid at my son's school who wrote this really funny and clearly influenced by Blackadder play and so you must be a huge influence on him but from conversations she'd had with me she knew that I was kind of like lost in the wilderness of like where do I what do I do with this and so she just said maybe you can send him a note or something and he did he he sent me a copy of Notting Hill which he signed to me and it was suddenly my heroes were real I mean it was really a game-changing I suddenly thought oh hang on they they are real and I can I can do this potentially and I wrote him a letter back because he had his address in there and so I thought, I'll send the letter, and then that'll be it. And then a letter came back from Richard Curtis, answering all the questions that I had. And even more so, I then felt like, okay, what I need to do is I need to move to England, and I need to meet Richard Curtis. <laughs> that will be, we're friends now. Like, that's the the thing. But that was that was the first real moment, outside of being in a secondhand bookshop and meeting a sort of almost a self-published author and it was the first author I'd ever met. And it was like, I still to this day, I'm very, I'm very lucky now that I'm very far into my career where I've, I've been really fortunate to hang out, become friends with a lot of authors and people who've written books despite being an actor or, or whatever their other bit of career is. And when I go into a bookshop now, I can look in most, most sections and spot a friend. And that's, if I had to tell me that at 13, that that's where I would manage to get to, even more so than having my own book on a shelf. The fact that I can go, oh my God, I know that person and I know that person. Because I'm, I'm one of, that's why I do this We Can Be Weirdo show. I, I hero worship. I'm, 
I love humans and I love how people think. And so that's that's always been a big drive to sort of be around creative people and, and do stuff. So yeah, so that that was it. The Richard Curtis moment was definitely, it suddenly was real. My goodness, I think my head would have exploded at the age of 16 <laughs> if I'd been in contact with one of the greatest screenwriters of all time. Yeah. Well, when sitcom writers, I mean, Mr. Bean, Blackadder. Mr. Bean slaps and it does not get nearly enough recognition. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Across genres. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it's the most, you know, Mr. Bean, if you go onto Facebook, is I think the fourth most followed Facebook page in the <laughs> world above Kim Kardashian above <laughs> Taylor Swift above all of that he's Mr Bean is a global name I I actually so last year I published a book um which was all about weird theories called the theory of everything else and my final bit the final like the epilogue of the book is me saying I've been telling you about lots of people's theories but I haven't told you about my own theory because everyone needs a crazy theory that they need to stick by and my crazy theory it's not that crazy but it's something I'm sticking to which is I believe I've discovered the greatest simultaneous global laugh that has ever happened on planet earth and my theory is is that it happened on the opening ceremony of the olympics in london when Chariots of Fire was being played, it was this beautiful, you know, orchestral thing. And then we get to the bit of the song where it's the dung, 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 dung. You see a finger just pressing a single piano key and then it pans up and there he is, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Bean. And I was in East London when it happened and we all laughed out loud. It was just such a beautiful reveal. And I know, and this was streaming around the world. It was on TV around the world. People were watching it online. That is the, one of the few faces alive where a global audience knows and finds funny. And that would have been everyone globally laughing at one time. I say, if, I imagine if an alien spaceship was passing at that time, it would have been the perfect moment because they would have just seen a planet in perfect harmony, all united under the idea of laughter. And that's a Richard Curtis joke. And Richard Curtis wrote that joke. 30 years into his career that's okay. a that's a that's a joke you would dream of writing when you're like in your like early youth where you're like come on i've got the energy of joke yeah. writing and he pulls that out at at that far in so yeah i'm i love mr bean so much and actually weirdly like just adding to that story of of richard curtis writing to me when i finally moved over to the uk and i was actually only here for a three-week holiday but I'm, I'm now here 20 years on the first person i met who was in the industry via my auntie because my auntie was working for local radio in bbc oxford and she was like an, a producer there i think for just um drive time radio and John Lloyd, the producer of Black Adder and Spitting Image, and and you know all all the QI is what he is currently his big one. She met him and she got his number for me, and I called him and he gave me a job on QI, and it was like, well, that was easy, you know. Like I was like, wow, okay. I, I, here I was thinking this was going to be quite hard, but I'm literally almost like that Hollywood scene of like jumping off yeah. a bus with two suitcases and going, okay, and then immediately meeting <laughs> someone. And then, so with my first che paycheck from QI, I could finally afford to move out of my auntie's house into another place. I got interviewed by the people living there. There was one guy missing from the house and um, I moved in. And so I met the missing guy from the house the day that I moved in. And he was like, hey, so what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm, I, I'm working 
working for QI. And he said, oh, my dad knows John Lloyd. My dad is John Howard Davies. Um, he, he directed Mr. Bean and Faulty Towers and Monty Python. It was the former head of comedy for the BBC. And I was like, wow, this really has been easy, hasn't it? Like, I've kind of just fallen into meeting all my heroes instantly. It was very bizarre. That's like proof of luck, if anything. You are the luckiest man. <laughs> I know, that was, that was ridiculous. My theory if I, I've just come up mm. with this now, so I'm allowed to change it later if I want. Now go for it. Fresh theory. Exciting. But my theory is that when good things happen, it's because you've done something good or you're going to do something good. There was a book that was written by Richard Wiseman. He's a sort of psychologist, magician, science guy called The Luck Factor. I haven't read it yet, but he's very much a sort of rational kind of like knocks away any woo-wooism, but he says luck is a thing. You do make luck. And I want to read that because I do, I, I agree kind of with what you're saying. I feel like luck has been part of my life largely. Yeah. What you do with that luck is a very big thing. You got to, you got to be ready for the lucky moment because you've got to then, you know, being put in front of John Lloyd doesn't just get you a job. I had to, I had yeah. to be right in that interview with him yeah. to get that job. I had to be pre prepared. And I was, I felt like I'd, I'd been preparing for that moment since I was 13, you know? Yeah. Um, so you've got, yeah, you've got to, you've got to be the right person to yeah. use that luck wisely. But yeah, is there anything spooky about it? I don't know. Maybe. I interviewed Florence Pugh last week for Oppenheimer oh, yeah. and she said, and I thought it was just such a a good quote she was like when that opportunity comes be ready know that when the microphone is on you what you want to say and what you want to do mm. and i think that's very true for a lot of situations like you're describing yes it's a lot of sliding doors and being in the right place at the right time but it's also when you're in that moment taking it and just thinking let's roll let's go with it yeah so how old were you when you got your job on qi you sound like you were young yeah, I was 19. So I, I, I just finished high school, but I went to a really weird hippie school, which is called Rudolf Steiner. A lot of people get angry when I say it's a hippie school because actually it's kind of very um, uh, backward and pseudoscience-y and holistic and all that sort of okay. stuff. It's, uh, it's very controversial, but my particular branch of it in Australia wasn't. It was just a very nice hippie-ish kind of school. And the school had a thing where you could either follow the main curriculum that every other school was doing, or you could pivot and to this weird Rudolf Steiner world of um, doing a major project. And what it means is you do something that you think you're going to go down the road of, and I chose a comedy project to do, but you leave school without any qualifications. And so I finished high school without any qualifications, which means I couldn't go to university. But that was a decision I made. My parents never went to university, you know, the hairdressers. Yeah. They kind of just got on with it. And so I thought, yeah, I'll do I'll do the same. I mean, I did very arrogantly when I moved to the UK. I thought, I'm going to apply to Oxford. I think they might just like me and let me in. <laughs> that was that was my genuine belief. And um, I ended up meeting John Lloyd instead, so I never applied. Yeah, so luck. That's it, isn't it? Yeah. When you started on QI, I'm sure that must have been an incredible job. What was it like demystifying TV and how it works and, and getting sucked into the industry? Yeah. So at first it was very intimidating. I definitely was because I, I'm not, I, you know, 
I wasn't brought on to QI because John Lloyd met me and thought, wow, this guy's intellect is amazing. He doesn't need to go to university. He knows everything. It was the opposite. John was fascinated by how little I knew. He was like, this is the most ignorant guy I think I've ever met. This is amazing. That I'm making a show where ignorance is a thing. We can test all the questions on him. This is like, it's such a useful idiot to have around. And <laughs> and so I got the gig because I think I was just curious and I kept asking questions. What does that mean? And I think that's, for John, that's refreshing. And for John, you know, it was, this was a big moment. QI was his return to TV. He disappeared for a long time doing adverts. He also had quite a sort of midlife crisis, which he's very open to talk about. Um, and this was his return. He finally found a new project. So the whole industry of writers wanted to be part of John Lloyd's new panel show. He could have had anyone, but I think his real great genius is that he looks at who do I want to be in a room with, go to the pub with afterwards, and who's going to stay up till 5am trying to perfect uh, a bit of script or a bit of a question or try and find a research yeah. thing. He obviously, I think, saw that in me. And and so that's how I got the job over someone who, you know, writes for Have I Got News for You or whatever. It was, it was, a, it's an amazing thing that I've hopefully gonna, you know, in my career going forward will emulate, which is look for people who are going to be perfect for the project, not just because the CV is right. And, and I also, like you said, right place, right time earlier. I, I sort of have a thing, which again, I put it in the epilogue of my book, which is I sort of think there's a power as well to being in the right place at the wrong, sorry, the wrong place at the right time. Because if you're in the right place at the right time, quite often you're trying to map out a life that you've visualized and take the steps that everyone else tells you to take. If you're if you're working for a company, you're going, oh, well, there's a promotion that will get me there and then that will get me to this bit and so on. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is also, if you feel a bit stuck in life, put yourself in some place where you're not really meant to be. But if you're there at the right time, you might meet someone who will go, hey, why don't you join this thing? Maybe we could form something new within it. Yeah. And you can go further in your career in a way that you might not have before. When I when I left QI and I knew I wanted to do comedy, um, so I, I was with QI for two seasons and then I wanted to move to London. It was based in Oxford. And at that time, QI wasn't the empire that it is now. It had when it was off season, there really was no TV to work on. And they'd opened up a club in Oxford. And so when I wasn't working on the TV show, I was working in the bookshop that they'd opened, or I was for some reason put behind the bar to make coffees, even though I'd never made coffees before. And I thought, well, actually, I'm just going to move to London. And John couldn't believe it. He was like, what? <laughs> you were giving up this job. And I was like, I'll find something up in London. And and when I arrived up in London, I realized, ah, I can apply to comedy jobs. I could try and go to BBC Comedy. But actually, I'm still young. I'm still green. I'm still not there. I won't get the gig because there are way better people out there. So and then I saw a job which the BBC's quiz unit for development was advertising. And I thought, I could probably do that. They'd probably be interested in someone who worked on QI. And then I'll be their comedy guy. So I'll still be doing comedy. I'll just force myself into that role. And that's exactly what happened, where yeah. they didn't have anyone who was interested in comedy. They were all down the line interested in quiz. And by going there, I met another guy who did the same thing, Richard Turner. So he and I were kind of the comedy guys. And we got to be pitching comedy shows. And it would piss off the comedy departments because they were like, that's our gig. But 
you, you couldn't stop it. If a show makes it to the commissioner, that's that's what happens. And Rich and I then went on to co-create with John Lloyd a radio show yeah. and the Museum of Curiosity, which is still going to this day. So, and again, I, I was producer on that when I was 22 years old, I think. Never had produced anything. Rich had never produced anything. But John Lloyd just went, I reckon you can do it. You created yeah. it. Why not? Why not produce it? It's easy enough. Yeah, it's that saying, isn't it? which I heard the other day and I thought, oh my goodness, this is so true. The person with one card in their hand or the person in the worst situation when you've got nothing to lose is the person who takes the most risks. And Mm. I think sometimes it's worth asking yourself when you feel incredibly comfortable, when, like you're saying, you're in a company and you're hitting the next promotion, you're hitting things that is a very linear trajectory. But when you go outside of your comfort zone and you push yourself, sometimes those opportunities are even better. Yeah, exactly. And I think we're scared of those, I think, a lot of the time. Well, and and a lot of time we're right to be scared because we have, a lot of us will have kids or, you know, we'll be in situations where you need the money. Like, I... I'm, I did this all when I was in my early twenties when there was nothing to lose. And I still, I still take massive risks in my career, but I do it now with a, I think a bit of a CV behind me that means I feel a bit more secure. I feel like I, I could find my way into another gig. I was talking about this with Nick Mohammed, Nate from uh, Ted Lasso, and he's talking about how he's in a bit of his career now where he just feels really secure that because his, his life is, the next job has to come and I don't know where it's coming from, but that's what I am as an actor. But he feels now like it's going to come now because two-time Emmy nominated, Ted Lasso, yeah. this big show. It could all go wrong, but his confidence right now is that that can work for him. And and that's sort of how I feel-ish as well. You know, I've, I've, I've and I've done that in the last year, really, um, sort of stepped away from a day-to-day job at QI to write a book and then start a new podcast. And yeah. both both came to fruition. And not only that, but they they were ex- excited projects to the people that were pitching for me to do it with them. And then I got lucky by picking the right people, which, you know, that's another part of the process is you suddenly, if you're in that position, you can pick unwisely. I'm sorry, yeah. Indiana Jones is very much on my mind at the moment, but I, I chose wisely um, in yeah. both cases. So, yeah. When you were starting out, it was kind of a different time in terms of internet, social media. Yeah. And now it feels like a lot of the time to get our look in, you need this kind of presence on social media. And I wonder how you think that's impacting comedy. I think it's really true, but I also think it's a false thing entirely because the numbers don't reflect a truth, I don't think. Yeah, okay. So it's amazing if you're if you're pitching yourself towards people, they look at your social numbers, and that's a huge thing. I think when celebrities are given book deals, it's a big thing. I think it's um, if you're being booked for live comedy or you know, people look at the socials now and they say, how can you make my, how can we work together you know, to help each other to get the message out about, you know, my comedy night or the yeah. book or whatever. But I, I personally think that there is zero impact for the majority of people who use social media. I think those people who've absolutely nailed grabbing an audience and the numbers reflect that. Yeah. But in most cases, you can see someone put out a tweet that has, they'll have 2 million followers and they'll get 28 likes from that saying, check out my new thing. Like, yeah. the numbers just don't quite reflect because we don't know how many of those people are active, if they've fallen out of love with the person that they're following. 
And I keep noticing that. I keep thinking, wow, this person got a really good book deal or they got a really good TV deal because these numbers represent something massive to the yeah. companies that are that are taking them in. But the reality, and I think everyone knows this as well, we just stay silent about it, is that those numbers don't have any kind of real-life yeah. impact. There, so my wife, as I said earlier, she's an editor for Penguin, and she does books for a huge range of people. But one of the people is um, Mrs. Hinch, who is a Instagram... Yeah, the cleaning lady. Yeah, exactly. She's so loved by her fans. And so Fenella, when she put out Mrs. Hinch's book, she was, you know, what she was doing was she was releasing merchandise for a fan base who wanted to have her book on their shelves. It's almost different. It's almost like buying something at a gig, like a T-shirt. A lot of book people get very frustrated about um, how the death of books is happening with all these influencers. And I think you've got to separate them and go, no, that's they're allowed to have merchandise people. And that's just, that's flooding into where you're seeing it. But her hit rate of selling a book versus her numbers is ginormous. Her hit rate of engaging with her audience uh those numbers are real that's the that's yeah. one of the rare times where those numbers are absolutely real for me no there there's a fake number it's a but it's useful for me when yeah. uh when people want me to do projects so they think wow he's he's got and i don't yeah. even have big numbers i've got like you know i've got comparative you know i've got it's close to 70,000 on twitter which obviously is huge but it's not a million you know a million is is no. huge but you do need this presence and you do need to then, because you always have these points where you're like, oh, I should just take myself off Twitter and Instagram. I'm wasting too much time. And then you get to a moment like I did yesterday where my book came out in America and I'm I'm on Twitter just going, come on, please. I've got three kids. They're starving. Someone buy my book. Come on. And you and it's really useful. And and then and for me, I I'm more consumer of the social media world in a positive way for what I do for yeah. a living. Then, because I, when I ever, I used to, as I said before, I'm really into people and I, and I love, I, when I, when I work with someone, I don't want it to just end. I want to be friends. I want to hang out. And, and I get to, through the kind of projects that I do, I meet a lot of people who are like world changing explorers or amazing nuns or, you know, like there's just a whole variety of interesting people, particularly when I was doing Museum of Curiosity. And I always found it so annoying that, if I was going through an agent or if I was going through someone else, that's it. They're done. And then Twitter comes along while we start making museum. And now I'm mates with all these people who were, I'm still in touch with the ancient Babylonian cuneiform curator from the British museum. We go out for pints, you know, that never would have happened before, but we can find each other and we can, I mean, actually he's a bad example because he's not on social media. We just happen to stay in contact, but there are at least 50 people who without Twitter, I would not be friends with now because also as adults, it's hard to be, become friends, make you know, go on friend dates. You know, it's it's tough. Yeah, it's a different relationship for sure. Yeah, having to broach that. But when you get there, it's a really nice feeling. I think everyone just has to put aside their awkwardness. But actually, yeah. it's really nice. And some of my closest friends are from adulthood. No, same here, same here. And it, cha- I, you know, I, I, as I say, I got three kids. That changes even further because, like, yeah. like my kids picking Paw Patrol for us to watch on TV. They're also kind of picking my adult friends now because I have to go to this party or hang out at their house in the afternoon. And yeah. then you realize, whoa, we're suddenly best friends, like just because our kids were hanging out. So yeah, yeah no, I've never really thought about how much my life has been curated by my kids now. But yeah, everything. 
It's so interesting that you say that because I listened to you on a podcast and you said that you felt incredibly proud of when people share their batshit beliefs. Mm. Because when you share something that you think is crazy or that you know isn't perhaps the norm, you're being really vulnerable, but that is what human connection is about. But let's talk about that. Let's talk about human connection through comedy. Yeah, well... (sighs) Comedy is, I mean, it is the thing, right? Like, it is the medicine. It's the medicine that we all need. And I think particularly when the pandemic was happening and we carried on doing fish over Zoom and putting it out weekly, I don't think we ever felt such a a sense of what a comedy show can mean to people because we're just making comedy. That's that's never been the intention that we're thinking, well, there's probably someone out there with huge anxiety issues. We've got to keep going for them. Um, that was kind of silent listenership prior to the pandemic. You'd get one or two messages or like a, uh, at a, after a gig, we would always do signings and people would come up and say, Hey, I just want to let you know that I was feeling very lonely at the beginning of this year. And this is the one thing that I listened to that, that is my friend. And that's hugely emotional when you hear a thing like that. Um, and uh, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to ever treat it as if it's like, you know, you're doing a more important job than anyone else, but it is a nice side effect to know that the comedy is playing its little role in, in helping someone somewhere. That's, that's, that's a hugely powerful thing to hear. And it comes in many different ways. There, one, probably the most powerful moment I've ever had on a personal level in that kind of territory was my wife, after giving birth to our first son, had huge problems with mastitis, which a lot of women have. And she had a very extreme case of it. Um, so that's where milk ducts get clogged up and during breastfeeding. And her case got so bad that it resulted in her needing surgery to take out um, an abscess. It was a really, it was a really bad thing. And she had to go under general anesthetic and she was really nervous because she'd never really had that before. And she was very scared. And so we we went to this hospital in Tunbridge Wells and had the operation. And usually what happens is, is the doctor, who we'd met very briefly before and told us about the surgery, kind of does it. And and then your partner or whoever's in there, who's whatever relation they are to you, just lays there until they wake up. And you get no knowledge about whether or not it's gone well or... Any, and I said to the doctor before it was happening, the surgeon, I was like, so someone's going to come up and tell us it was okay, right? And she was like, no, 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 they just wake up and then get brought up to you eventually. So however long it takes for them to wake up, you just have to wait. And I was like, oh, God, okay, uh, that's a bit scary. So anyway, so the surgery happens and we're just waiting in a room and we know the surgery has ended because it's going to be roughly an hour is what they say. And we get a knock on the door and it's the doctor. And she came up and just said, sorry, I just wanted to say that it went well. It's all taken out and your wife is fine. She's just waking up now and she's just recovering. And so that was a really sweet thing. And I was like, thank you so much. And I was really emotional because, you know, we got this newborn baby and she was in so much pain with this mastitis. It was a horrific war-torn period of like our personal life of me watching something I couldn't do anything to fix, you know. And, um, And then the doctor, the surgeon just says... By the way, can I just quickly say, um, the day today that I do surgery on, I do multiple surgeries. I do it all the time. I'm the I'm the lead surgeon here. And it's a Friday, I think she said that it was on. It's a painful day for me because sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes it goes great, but it, I have to just plug through an entire day no matter what is going on and do it. She said, the one thing that gets me through it is 
at the end of the day, I go home and my husband is always waiting for me with an open bottle of red wine. And we sit down and we put on the latest episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. And that oh. brings me back. It makes me laugh. And it reminds me that life is good and stuff. And I'm, I was crying my ass off at this yeah, point because I, I just, I couldn't believe, you know, we're, as I say, we're just making a comedy show. And, and here you are, it turns out, helping the people who are helping people. And we all play, you know, all of us play this role in, in people's lives that we don't know and may never know. And I happen to be in one of those lucky positions where sometimes people tell me how it's influenced or how it's helped them and stuff. So, yeah, it's really, it's, it's an incredible, comedy has always been that. It's why we never cry harder, I think, than when we see Homer upset in The Simpsons or, or a comedian cry. Because there's something so vulnerable about a comedian being upset that it's the yeah. most heartbreaking thing in the world. I can't think a clown crying is a horrible thing. And it's why when people like Robin Williams die, the feeling is yeah. so different to say when a David Bowie dies or a Prince dies. There's there's something so you feel like a family member has gone. Because yeah. they're so, and you do give yourself, because co- that's what comedy has to be. It has to be honest, and it has to be, it has to have heart to it, largely. There's many different kinds of comedy, obviously. But like, you know, when we do no such thing as a fish, we thought we're just doing facts. We we used to rarely say anything about our personal lives. Yet people felt like we were best friends, because we were we were the pub gang that they never would get to go to a physical pub with, but could go in their head with. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I, I, you know, that's why I've always loved it. And it's always why I loved MASH. It's why from the very beginning, that's the one show that really hit me hard because it could be a show that would jump from being ridiculously funny to the most emotional scene where they're trying to save the life of a soldier who's who's got a bullet wound in them and they'll lose them. And you have to then continue on in this episode with this sadness hanging over it. I mean, it's it, that as a show is the most wonderfully polar sides of life, the funny and the sadness. And yeah, no, so maybe that's just me personally that I'm, I'm really into, um, the fact that the comedy is so much also a part of an emotional bit of our life that is magical. Did you ever watch the special by Hannah Gadsby Nanette? Yes. Yeah. Because that's kind of, she does that. She comes at it with, it's all this very funny comedy sketch and then she obviously subverts it by showing how much of her material has come from actually quite dark moments and how comedy has got her through that but also the relationship between comedy and self. Also, I'm really pleased that everything was okay with your wife because I'm sure that was a terrible and terrifying experience. It was. Weirdly, it was like the operation wasn't that dangerous but it was kind of, she had sepsis which is dangerous off the back of this and so it kind of, it was scary. But with, with Hannah and Nanette, I... I find it very frustrating when a lot of people were giving it criticism for saying it's not a comedy show. She starts off doing material and then it goes into like this ranty bit. And when you do watch it, there is so much heart and seriousness to it. Yeah. But you sort of go, well, then you don't understand what comedy is because she would always at the end of something would pull it back with a gag or something that would get you. And that's that's what comedy is. That show was a stand-up show. Yes, it wasn't the classic one-liners the whole way through that we know, but there were multitudes to the different kind of comedy that you can do. 
to call that not a comedy show, which is only a very small fringe group of people that did, but uh, you know that that those things rise to the top, and you see them online. I thought, no, you 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 got it wrong. You're missing the bigger picture here. That yeah. is a proper stand-up show. I mean, it's phenomenal. She's she's incredible. Yeah. Can we go back to talking about no such thing as a fish? And I yeah. just wonder. Because what's come about is such a magical show with such a loyal following. And my best friend is a huge fan. So oh, yeah. she sent me a question to ask, which we'll oh, great. come cool. on to in a bit. But And, ever, and she's very jealous that we're, we're getting to have this conversation. She's been to live shows. What's her name? Her name's Kat. Hi, Kat. Hello, there you go. Kat. Hey, Kat. She'll love that. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. And if she doesn't, then we'll know. So yeah, exactly. this is a good test of friendship. When you created that show, I saw on Instagram, it, you'd originally created it for your bosses to listen to. Mm. They didn't know how to use WeTransfer. And yeah. so it kind of went out into the world unexpectedly and people started responding to it. When you were creating it, did you ever have any kind of ambitions or foresight or was it just to create this podcast? Well, my job at QI at the time, I'd been brought back in after having disappeared from QI for many, many years. So I, when I left after Series C of QI and moved to London and started working for the BBC and stuff, I was peripherally working with QI with John on Museum of Curiosity, but I wasn't a yeah. QI person. So, And then I started doing stand-up and, and a few TV shows and producing other things. And then John and I had a, a chat one day in a pub and he said, you know, we really want to start making more shows at QI. Can I talk you into coming back? I think that's what happened. Or I begged him because I was broke. One of the things <laughs> happened. Either way, I was I was back at QI and... There was lots of chats about TV shows and all that sort of stuff. And I'd never made a podcast before, but I did have radio experience as a producer. And so did James Harkin, who's one of the other four on Fish. He was with us from the beginning from Museum of Curiosity. And then when I stepped down as co-producer, James stepped in as the co-producer. So he had his chops of uh, being a producer as well. And so I think a few because a lot of people pitch stuff to QI as well. And I think a few people were sort of saying, I'd love to do a QI podcast. And so I just said to John one day, well, you know, we we don't, we're, we're here as a unit. Look at all these people here. We don't need to bring in outside ideas. Let's just make our own stuff. Let me come up with a podcast and let's see if it works. And so that was the beginning of it. And I... And the, the real beginning as well was sitting back again in a room with QI people and just watching the sort of the effortlessness of facts that were flying around the room. Hey, guys, I've just found this thing about Eddie Murphy. He used to do this movie. Hey, do you know Eddie Murphy was in a movie with this guy and they did this thing? Oh, yeah, did you know that the, the director of that? Like, it suddenly was like, you know, if we bottled this, I think this could this could work. And then we spent, you know, about six months, basically, testing out different ideas for what the show could be and until it just reached this really simplistic place of what if we're the QI researchers, people are always interested in what we find to be interesting and there must be so many facts that don't make it on TV. What if we just each brought our favorite fact that we found that week and we'll tell each other in advance what that fact is so we can all go away and research other things about it, but then we won't tell each other what we found and then let's just do that. I'll do my fact, and then we'll chat about it. And then we'll do your fact, and then we'll do Anna's, and we'll do Andy's. And that was it. It was a really simplistic thing. But I will say that once we had the pilot edited, 
which was a mixture of like six different shows. Um, I just, I picked like Fact 2 from a previous ep and I picked Fact, like it was a smack, it was like a best of pilots, basically our, our first ever pilot. I remember I was sitting with James and I said, we're going to be the biggest podcast in the country. This, this is a great show. And that was the producer in me, not the host in me talking. That wasn't ego. That was stepping back and looking at this, this so simplistic, this format that we'd, it's it's elegant it's beautiful there's not we haven't touched it in nine years and we've never needed to and no one's complained about needing to to shake it up and so yeah okay i mean yes okay it is arrogant for me to say that but that's maybe maybe sometimes that's what helps a show to get big is having someone on board who has an arrogance to think we're going to make this the biggest thing in the country because this deserves to be and then it did it went it went straight away kind of found its feet with an audience even though we were recording on one mic and accidentally releasing the first episode under my mum's name, not even <laughs> not even no such thing as a fish. First episode was by Caroline Schreiber, and it had a name kind of like no such sangalangdang. I just I just gave up on even giving it a title for the episode, and so you know we were we were amateurs, but I guess there's a charm to that. There's always a charm to that in podcasting, which I'm very excitedly getting to remember and realize as I'm doing. We can be weirdos, starting yeah. fresh and and rolling with the mistakes and and enjoying the 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 evolution of an idea in real time publicly. I mean, that's what podcasting I think really is about. It's that it's that energy of like a of like early day saturday night live every podcast should feel like it's just started its own saturday night live you're so right there because i mean even when we're now in our fourth series of the radio times podcast and yeah even just seeing my voice change as well mm. when you start a podcast you i think sometimes think you have to be one thing and it's an interview podcast and how you are as a host I'd grown up listening to, you know, Desert Island Discs and I was mm. like, well, I've got to be like a BBC broadcaster and it's got to be all very clipped and the conversation has to be a question answer. And now it's evolved into this very beautiful conversation. You know, yeah. yes, I prepare, I have questions, but actually what it's about is we've gone everywhere. That's what, you know, I said at the beginning, this is going to be very kitchen sink because it's just about following the person that you're talking to. I think that's the great... So I'd be interested to hear your Series 2 version of you because yeah. you're incredibly <laughs> natural and very, very good at what you do. And you're, you're doing the most important thing, which is, yeah, come prepped, find the questions, find the things. They will come up. Don't prescribe them and don't go, yeah. I've got to get this order down. The most important thing, which I, I've uh, discovered with doing this new one, We Can Be Weirdos, is listen to your guest and follow that and ask the question that maybe the audience is begging to be asked as you've part like Nick Mohammed the other day sort of saying, you know, me and my wife, we have lots of superstitions. Um, uh, I have a pair of lucky pants and he tried to like continue. And I was like, let me just stop you there. You would tell me about these lucky pants. You know, like if I was looking at my sheet going, okay, he's giving me that answer, but I need to get to the next one. You miss yeah. all these moments and you miss a connection. Like this is an effortless chat we're having right now. I yeah. mean, I know I've been ranting a lot about my experience, but um, in the bits, uh, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's nice and freeing. And, and Desert Island Dislow, like on the flip side, is probably the greatest radio show ever made. And, 
And the, those interviews are astonishing that, you know, particularly Kirsty could get a, a guest to cry within three minutes um, and reveal something they've held for 60 years in some cases. I met her at the Radio Times cover party and I had to get kind of little sound bites from people to go along with the pictures that we were running in the magazine. And it was the first time I'd say I, I'm not a particularly... I don't get starstruck. And I think from doing this job, you just mm. realise people are people. Yeah. And sometimes, obviously, I get nervous. I did an interview with Emma Thompson and I was, you know, shaking. And Yeah, there there are a few people that throw you, aren't there? Yeah. yeah, but when you actually get down to it after the first two minutes, you're in and you're thinking, we're just having, like you say, a conversation. Yeah. Except for <laughs> with Kirsty, I kind of just spieled for two seconds she looked a little bit shocked and then gathered herself and gave me like a very nice little quote and I thought I just wish I'd done that better I just if I could go back I would have just been normal and just said instead of being like oh my god I love you so much and being incomprehensible I'd argue though that I think it's really important that people like you and I who are meeting these these big celebrities the reason largely that we got into doing what we're doing still have that moment where we lose our crap because we're around someone that we've admired. I, it's For the so most, long. you probably hated it in the moment, but afterwards it would have been the most exciting feeling of being like, it was so nice to just be starstruck. I, I was at a, um, I was at a opening night for the upstart crow play that Ben Elton wrote and David Mitchell was on. And, and I was in, I was in the after party and which I luckily got invited to, uh, through a comedy friend of mine. And, um, Alan Davis was in there who I know through QI. So I went up and Alice Allen's with his wife and stuff and we're chatting away. And then suddenly the person who just walks into the, the mix is Adrian Edmondson. And I, I, you know, I grew up on the young one's bottom. I mean, he is one of my comedy heroes and I, I lost it and I couldn't, I just couldn't say words and Alan and him actually went down. It's okay. Like they, they saw it's, what was happening. Oh, it's okay. And then Adrian said like a, a basic sentence. I just went <laughs> like <laughs> the most manic, crazy laugh. And it was embarrassing. It was terrible. But afterwards, I was so glad that I could still feel that feeling. It's kind of like, yeah. you know, when you do what you do and you become numb to it, that's a terrible you moment. Do. But that's great that, like, that's great that you did that with Kirsty. That's great that Emma shook you up for two seconds because that's, that's why we started doing this kind of thing, particularly as interviewers. You know, this was our ticket to hang out with people who we find extraordinary on a personal level. Yeah. So I would say that's important. And I'm glad you've still got that because. Otherwise, yeah, you don't want to be a, a dead vessel of an interviewer who just <laughs> so can't have feeling. You've put such a positive spin on that. That's made me feel so much better. This is the luck thing that I'm talking about. You're obviously just, your outset is very positive. Oh, very that's kind. interesting. Oh, we'll try that um, next time. You, Yeah, you absolutely yeah. embarrass yourself in front of a, uh, a celeb. Yeah, just think, what would Dan say? This is a good thing. This is a good thing. Just think that. <laughs> And, and I'll tell you what, it would have made her day to see someone who's in the industry lose yeah, it flushed. over. Yeah, it's, it's, it would have been like, wow, how cool is that? That someone <laughs> admires what I do so much that even though they work in what I do and meet people a hundred times a day or whatever, that, that, that would have made her day. Like no so question true. that would have made her day. I found it really interesting. So I listened to your first episode of We Can Be Weirdos. Oh, yeah. And it's with the neurosurgeon. And, yes. Uh, correct me if I'm butchering his name. Harith Akram? Harith, yeah. Harith, Harith Akram. Akram. 
And I was so captivated by it. I have a soft spot for anyone in medicine because my partner is a doctor. Okay. And I see how much they give. And I think it's one of those industries that I think we think we're appreciative of. And when you see someone go through the cycle of working in the NHS every day, it, yeah. can, it can be very different. And I was so interested that someone who doesn't, you know, I don't know his name. Mm. Or I'd not heard of him before. Yeah. But I was so sucked into that conversation. I mean, he's got such an interesting life. Yeah. And also career path as well. For listeners at home, if you haven't heard, obviously go and listen to the episode. But he's found a cure for chronic pain. Yeah. And they're in the kind of paths of getting that approved. Yeah. But what's interesting to me is sometimes the stories that are the most interesting aren't necessarily the ones that we think are going to be the most interesting. You know, it's mm. not always the biggest movie star. It's sometimes that neurosurgeon who's just come up for it with a cure that could genuinely change medicine going forward yeah so what stories have stayed with you from this series from this series well i mean harry's one is absolutely the biggie i mean you know that was that was another thing where i i was approached by global to make a podcast i think they were thinking you know Dan is going to bring in lots of huge celebrities and and certainly that was in my head you know this is this is a difficult second podcast you know I'm you know I'm still I'm still hosting this main show which is my main baby and here I am sort of effectively you know uh trying to launch another baby into the world and you want to do that with your best foot forward. I need, I need an Eddie Izzard. I need a, you know, I need Madonna. I need someone yeah. big to launch me into this thing. And then as we were testing it out and trying it out, and I was thinking of the kind of people that I wanted on, I thought about my friend Harry, who I know through my wife, and and this extraordinary thing that he'd done, and this ex- incredible story of growing up in Iraq being born four days just after the first Iran-Iraq war started, being a premature child that should have been in an incubator, but it being so dangerous in the hospital that the doctor said, take him home and just leave him near a kettle. Like, that's how he survived. Insane, isn't it? He then grows up living underground in a bunker with multiple families as bombs are dropping throughout his entire childhood. There's a bit in the show which um, we edited out just purely because we didn't get the wording of it right and it kind of was just a bit muddled. But he was such a clever kid that he was taken in by Saddam Hussein's elite schooling to sort of train, like, basically, I think Saddam wanted to create a school and a generation of children that were going to be his, like, particular, like, foot soldiers, I guess. Um, and, you know, and then his family fled and escaped, and he then grew up here. And there's a beautiful story of his auntie Ida, who is uh, sadly was very ill and passed away from a very painful cancer. And the frustration that he had that he couldn't do anything I'm a doctor. Why can't I fix her? Why can't I even just make the pain go away? It's a heartbreaking thing to hear. And he gets very, he told me it one night in a pub and he he got very emotional in the pub and I'd never seen him like that before. And that led him down this road. I want to, I want to make sure that people don't have to suffer in pain. And the guy has bloody done it. He's, he's found a, a remarkable bit of surgery by using brain scans and using coding and algorithms in a way that most doctors won't have ever known to use and he's isolated the exact spot in the brain where where we experience emotional pain which is what chronic pain is so it's not normal pain like you hit your elbow we need that pain we need to know if our hand is burning that's the pain that keeps us alive and safe by warning us against stuff but what we don't need is 
the cancerous pain. We don't need those extra other pains. And yeah, and he was worked it out. And he's cured eight people now of chronic pain. They sadly, I think most of them have passed away because they're still terminal with whatever they had. Yeah. You can't cure cancer, but he can make it so that you can go home and be with your family and not experience being out of it on morphine until your dying day. So it's yeah. a huge moment. I think, it, you know, there's so many different amazing advancements that are happening and and so on. But it, to me, that feels like we're going to be hearing his name next to Nobel Prize winning yeah. very soon, um, or, you know, one day at least in his life. But when I, when I had that story, I thought, no, that's my opening episode. I'm going to lay my cards down and saying that's what this series is about. It's not... It's not going to be just back-to-back comedians and celebrities that, you know, I want to I want to introduce you to people that I think need to be known about. And then yeah. I want to ask them about yetis and ghosts and stuff and like that. Yeah. And why not? Because that's the stuff that I'm interested in. And I'm also sick of people not talking about it and brushing it under the carpet. Like, we aren't all secretly harboring bits of nutcasery, which we all are. We all <laughs> so have true. our... Uh, we all have it. And, uh, and a dinner party is always the best dinner party when people let their guard down and start telling, well, this one time I had, you know, I don't believe in ghosts, but let me tell you about this crazy thing that happened. Those are the stories that are really fun and nice. And so, yeah, so that's that's what the series has been. I've got, I've got an episode with Ella Al-Shamahi, and she's, a, she's become a TV presenter who's a sort of adventurer, and she does these kind of archaeological shows. Amazing kind of presenter and character, but her backstory, which she hasn't really spoken about much, but she does on my show... It's phenomenal. She came from a very uh, extreme creationist position, and she used to go doing talks around the UK trying to convert people to become a, a uh, creationist, basically, to show that science was broken and then it was fake. And then she went to university and applied for evolutionary biology just so she could sit on the inside and break it from the inside, see doubt to all the scientists and stuff. And then what happened was... As she was researching it to find out the bits to break it from the inside with, it all started making sense to her. And she realized, no, hang on, this is real. This is an actual thing. And this is in her 20s. And she goes then from a life where she's um, a Muslim family, where she's never made proper eye contact with men who were outside of her family, certainly had never shook a hand of someone who was not part of her family, going from that to taking off all of the garb that was associated with her past life, walking out in crop tops, as she says, shaking the hands of men, which is a an impossible thing. And now in, you know, in that 10 year period is now one of the biggest emerging TV presenters. And just hearing that story is, yeah, well, it's just golden. And that's, so that's, that's what I'm obsessed with of getting out. And then to find out that she believes in all sorts of weird things as well is just the icing on the cake, really. I think we're just so lucky. I think when someone allows us to go deep, to have these conversations where you discover so much, not only about your guests, but about yourself. And that sounds very pretentious. But actually, the truth of it is, I think the reasons why podcasts are so successful, why people want to listen is because that human connection in a world of social media and a world that is getting bigger and bigger and we feel like there's so many connections, but how many genuine connections, perhaps. It's the magic. It's why I think both of us do what we do is to have that chance to have those conversations. I'm going to ask Kat's question now because I think Ooh, it ties okay. in quite nicely. Yeah, go for it. So this is from Catherine Fank. Hi, Kat. 
You started the podcast to share funny, interesting and informative facts. This is about no such thing as a fish. Yeah. But during the course of nearly 10 years of the podcast, some of society's relationships with facts and truth has changed significantly. Yeah. Particularly thinking of Donald Trump's rise and fall here. How does it feel to be a podcast centred on the existence of meaningful truth against the changing landscape? We do get deep sometimes, but we're never saying facts to alter your thinking. We're ne- there's no agenda behind what we're trying to do on the show. But that's unusual, isn't it? I think it is unusual, but I think that's kind of, you know, uh, have to acknowledge that Fish is a spin-off of QI's core philosophy. You know, nothing, you know, you could say the TV show or whatever, but really it's the core philosophy of what John Lloyd had this epiphany about when he had his midlife crisis, which is that everything is interesting if you look at it in the right way. And so that's kind of all that we're trying to do as well, is we're just saying, isn't life incredible? Isn't it mysterious? And isn't it amazing that you can find... <laughs> there's a there's a fact that I did. It's such a stupid fact, but we did it anyway, which is coming up on a future episode. You know John Candy, the, the actor John Candy? He was in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Uncle Buck, and Home Alone, and he was he was one of, you'll know his face, he was such a big comedian, sadly died in his early 40s, so he kind of has disappeared off the landscape. If he was still alive, he'd be one of the biggest household names, I reckon, in the world. Um, uh, and, yeah, and uh, it's just my favourite fact is that um, John Candy was born on Halloween. Just a, it's just a stupid... It's called Candy and he's born on Halloween. It's just dumb. But <laughs> but but when you find something like that, you just take the day off in a weird way, you know? It's just a it's just a nice little nugget. And and so that's what we thrive on. We thrive on just finding these silly little things that make us laugh and then make you kind of realize that there's a lot more going behind every single thing in the world, you know, when you when you think about all these industries out there, like flip-flops or things like that, and you think, I have no time for flip-flops. And then you look into the making of flip-flops and you think, how am I not spending all my time looking into flip-flops? This is mad. And that's, I think, the enthusiasm that we give to uh, the listener um, and certainly to ourselves because we do this weekly. It's really hard. You sort of, sometimes you, you you do get fact fatigue and you wake up and you go, oh my God, I can't believe I've got to research a Roman emperor a, a weird leopard mating thing, a, uh, a 90s comedian who died young. And like you, so you kind of go, and then you start and immediately there's, it's impossible not to just fall in love with your job all over again because facts don't care how you're feeling, what your mood is. If they're interesting and that's something that you love doing, it doesn't matter how tired you are you're not going to get pissed off at a fact and be like, oh, God, yeah, okay, that's a... You're just like, what? How has no one ever told me this before? And so all the kind of, yeah, the real horrific stuff that's been happening with fake news, kind of, you know, to use that term, and and the bending of information, and even, I mean, my, my new show, We Can Be Weirdos, is a response to the fact that everyone keeps bracketing anyone with weird beliefs as a conspiracy theorist. And I think there's a huge distinction between believing in Bigfoot and actually being a Trump supporter. But everyone seems to think there's such a high correlation that if you have any interest, and that's why we're afraid to say our weird things out loud, we think we're going to damage our careers and we think we're going to hurt friendships or our social standing. 
and that needs to be re-separated because because the the person in us who loves watching as kids shows like the x-files or watching independence day or anything like that and being around a campfire and telling each other these mad stories oh my god my mum had the thing where and then the, the, the and then the ghost walked through the room like that's what's fun it makes it gives you goosebumps and it makes you feel alive and we're stuck it's like with alternative facts and fake facts believing in weird stuff has been turned into conspiracy and there seems to be no separation between the two so actually weirdly the two shows that i make are fighting against two different things i didn't realize it until you just said that but um yeah we and then we did a tv show for fish as well uh called no such thing as the news which um we analyzed the news in just a different way. We just wanted you to know more about the background to things that were going on. Not necessarily, there was like a story that Barack Obama had arrived into the UK and he'd brought his own car, which is known as the Beast. And, you know, you're just saying, okay, I don't know anything about the Beast. It must be an amazing car. And then you find out the Beast is this extraordinary vessel that has, you know, uh, vials of the president's blood in case he needs an emergency um, transfusion, if in case there's, you know, in case he's hurt. Or, you know, the Beast is this. And so we would do a show on TV where in a week where everyone was talking about something quite hectic, we would be talking about an object to do with the story. Or I remember when Trump got inaugurated, we did a show on the night, sorry, that he won the election we did a show the very night that he won the election and our opening fact i think was that melania trump's grandfather invented a new type of onion you know, that's that's what we're there for that's our purpose and there was a review which i thought was really cool that when the show went out because we were a bit nervous about trampling on the toes of things like have i got news for you or even the news quiz you know stuff on radio Someone made this point that um, that if there was a car park of comedy news shows, a lot of cars are parking behind shows like Have I Got News For You, trying to fit into that slot. But they said, but there was somehow an empty slot waiting for a show like No Such Thing As The News, and they've just driven into it and they've parked themselves comfortably like they've always been there. And that was the highest compliment because it meant that we'd done our job right. We were trying to do what we do on the on the show, which is to just say... Let's talk about interesting things so that when you have to, and we're so bored of talking about Trump, but when you have to talk yeah. about Trump, you can derail the conversation by saying his grandfather invented, or Melania's grandfather invented an onion. Like, it's it's that kind of thing. So It's so good. Yeah, and, it, and it's, you know, that's it keeps us away from any unwanted controversies because we're not interested in starting any fights online or trying to change again as i say we don't we're not there to change opinions we're not there to make points with facts we do sometimes just go isn't it extraordinary we don't know who this person is or i thought this person was terrible but actually look at the footprint they've had in history we do we do that stuff but um no it's yeah it's it's two separate worlds and maybe um, I'm grateful for people fighting against the alternative fact stuff, but I think, yeah, we've, we've got our own car park space, which I think is a necessary one to, to have something in. I think the shows and what I think about the most of what you do is just an encouragement to stay curious. Yeah. And that's important. And stay weird. Those and are the stay two weird. Things. Stay curious and stay weird. Stay curious, stay weird. And on that note, Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I loved it. I'm sorry I ranted so much, but it's been so nice chatting to you. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my interview with the comedian Sarah Pascoe, in which she reveals which panel show theme tune still gives her palpitations. 
or my interview with Daniel Radcliffe, in which we talk about learning the ropes from the greatest British cast of all time and learning to play the accordion. Both episodes can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>